This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I sort of wandered off our original parameters. I figured, why not go completely off the parameters? I had, like, a couple of fugitive stories that were interesting that weren't, I don't know, they're not as mysterious, I guess would be the word. Well, I have to say that um, I have a tendency to think that all fugitive type uh, stories are interesting. So, uh, yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't say any of them are less interesting, but yeah, maybe less mysterious. Sure. This one that I was starting with, I had never heard of it before, but this guy is fascinating. He was actually the subject of a book called The Fox is Crazy 2, which was written by a journalist named Elliot Asanoff. This guy, he's not a whole episode. He's just interesting. So his name is Garrett Brock Trapnell. Have you ever heard of him? I have, yeah. Okay, so uh, the Wikipedia or Cliff Notes version of him is so fascinating. So he's described as a con man, a bank robber, and an aircraft hijacker. Uh, he robbed his quite the resume, huh? <laughs> he, he robbed a string of banks in Canada, and he would pose as a CIA agent. And he had mastermind a hundred thousand dollar at the time jewelry store heist in Freeport, Bahamas, and somehow he simultaneously maintained marriages with six women. I have to say that that is the most shocking part to me. (laughs) And like, I feel like, um, you know, obviously we're going to learn how this story ends, but I feel like just handing him over to all six of his wives at once uh, would have been probably the solution to this. I, I don't know that I disagree with you on that. I will. uh, And I I, I will say this. Reading about him, there's a lot of court records that you can go back through. And when he would be arrested for his crimes, he would actually use 
the insanity defense. He would he, they, they describe it as feigning madness, but he would describe the insanity defense so that he would be committed to mental institutions. And then he would either escape or be released on the grounds that he's no longer dangerous. I got to say, if you're running around robbing banks, hijacking aircraft, posing as a CIA agent and, you know, pulling off jewelry store highs. Well, that's the thing. Like, so I think you're a criminal up to the point that you're pulling off jewelry store heist. Where I believe your insanity defense is where you're simultaneously maintaining marriages with six women. I mean, that's why you have to rob the banks and 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 rob the jewelry stores. Because you're gonna, married to six women. Well, I was gonna say, like, most people can't even maintain one marriage, right? Yeah. Um, much less like simultaneous multiple marriages. But um I don't know that. Uh, fiending insanity would be the correct term here. He sounds insane. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that like, I, I think that his story definitely has a lot of elements that there's probably some, some serious mental illness going on uh, where he comes as a, like his big claim to fame is on January 28th, 1972. He smuggled a 45 caliber pistol inside a plaster cast on his arm, and he hijacked TWA flight number two on a flight from L.A. to New York while it was over Chicago. And then he demanded $306,800 in cash. He was attempting uh, to recoup the loss of a recent court case. And then he demanded the release of Angela Davis – um, and another friend of his who was in prison, which uh, she ties into these fugitive episodes that we're covering as well. Um, and he, you know, demanded a formal pardon from President Richard Nixon. So there's a crew switch out at Kennedy Airport and the FBI is able to retake the aircraft. He gets shot and wounded. No one else gets hurt. But his high, his skyjacking, I guess, it's not a hijacking, it's a skyjacking comes after a string of similar uh, domestic incidents in U.S. air traffic history, which for some reason, for some reason, between 1968 and 1972, there are a lot of incidents reported between the United States and Cuba. Uh, They're variously attributed to like terrorism, extortion, uh, political asylum, uh, request mental illness and uh, just transportation between the two countries. So Trapnell is directly responsible for an overhaul of how the FAA did security. And those security uh, changes that they made in 1972, they remained in place until the September 11th attacks 30 years later when everything was overhauled. At trial, once he pleaded insanity and he claimed that he suffered from multiple personality disorder and uh, he claimed that he suffered from multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia and that the hijacking was actually committed by his alter ego named Greg Ross. This position was discredited when the prosecution produced audio recordings from an interview with Trapnell months before the hijacking in which he boasted to a journalist that one of his skills in his, uh, one of his arrows in his quiver as a skill was faking insanity. So the trial ended in a hung jury. A lone juror who was identified as a social worker 
They held out for his acquittal. Four months later, the prosecution retried him, and he was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, and he was incarcerated at USP Marion, which at that time was the first ever federal supermax prison. But while he was there, he continued to scheme and um, to be a criminal. Now, on May 24th, 1978, his friend, a 43-year-old woman named Barbara Oswald, she hijacked a St. Louis-based charter helicopter and forced the pilot to land in the yard at USP Marion, where Trapnell was serving his life sentence. While, while landing the aircraft, the pilot, Alan Barklage, who was a Vietnam veteran, got into a tussle with Oswald, and he got the gun away from her. So Barklage, the pilot, shot and killed her and stopped the escape. In addition to Trapnell, another inmate who was involved in the escape was in this escape was Martin McNally. And he had hijacked a St. Louis to Tulsa American airlines flight on June 23rd, 1972 and demanded $502,500 before jumping out of a Boeing 727 over Peru, Indiana. Alan Barklage died in a helicopter crash on September 19th, 1998. Uh, That's the pilot that shot Barbara Oswald and Martin McNally was paroled on January 27, 2010. There was uh, an author and a former member of the Black Panther Party that's often mentioned as being, uh, he was also a convicted bank robber. He was incarcerated at Marion at the time that this all took place. He said that Trapnell was placed under a no human contact order following the attempted escape. And he spent the rest of his life or most of the rest of his life in solitary confinement. Um, On December 21st, 1978, Robin Oswald, who is the 17 year old daughter of Barbara Oswald, hijacked TWA flight 541 and demanded that Trapnell be freed or she would detonate dynamite that was strapped to her body. The hostages aboard the flight remembered her as a beautiful girl with a serious demeanor who never exhibited any signs of nervousness. Uh, FBI negotiators were able to free the passengers and to convince Barbara to surrender with no injuries to her and nobody died. It turns out that the bomb that she had strapped to her chest, the dynamite, was actually not dynamite. It was a set of road flares that she had made to look like it was wired up to a doorbell. Um, so, so she was charged as a juvenile and we don't know what happened to her because everything was secret. Right. Cause uh, she was a juvenile. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that to me, um, it, it's interesting, right? Because um, you've got another 17 year old. Um, they were recruiting these uh, well, I don't know that they were recruiting them, but like you can tell how passionate like the seventies were about like, um, you know, causes because, uh, we talked about, um, in Angela Davis's case, the 17 year old, right. Um, and now we've got another 17 year old who hijacked a plane. So just to put it in time, this is happening within months of, uh, the incident with a person that the media calls D.B. Cooper. That happened in November of 1971. So all of these things are happening sort of around that. And I, I just think it, 
fascinating. It is fascinating. I so if I had one question to ask Trapnell or um, McNally, either one of them, I would want to know why they ask for the specific amount of money that they ask for. They're trying to cover some debt, like they're okay, but like. Why not go ahead and like round up or whatever, right? (laughs) Like, you know, Trapnell asked for $306,800 in cash and he gives the reasons, um, you know, he's trying to recoup financial loss. And then he asked for the other stuff, the release of uh, his friend, Angela Davis, and he wanted to be pardoned by the president. And then McNally asked for $502,500. Which I would actually, I think I'd like to know a little bit more about what happened there. I guess he had on a parachute. I don't know. Because <laughs> he just randomly <laughs> yeah. jumped out of the... <laughs> Over Peru, <laughs> Indiana, of oh, all no, places. Growing, yeah. And so, you know, it, it is fascinating. I I actually don't know uh, that there are many hijackings anymore. Uh, I think that was like sort of a relatively... You know, like you said, they put uh, the regu- safety regulations in place for passengers based on this guy's um, hijacking, right? And it was on the tails of um, D.B. Cooper, right? Yeah. And so it makes you sort of wonder, like, uh, you know, uh, this was – so hijacking wasn't a thing at some point in time, right? It was just so great to be on a plane and fly, and then slowly it evolved and people thought of ways to, you know, ruin it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, we can't have nice things. We really can't. And, you know, it's unfortunate that that's uh, the human, uh, that's human nature at work, right? Um, let's all uh, get into, you know, a piece of metal that can fly us anywhere we want to go, except we have to be in it with other people who were all stuck in a piece of metal going wherever we want to go, right? <laughs> they yeah. can do things in that situation that are bad. So uh, it's pretty fascinating, but uh, it doesn't sound to me like, this guy was violent. And what do you think about Eddie G. Griffin, who you mentioned, and he was a former member of the Black Panther Party and a convicted bank robbery robber who gave the statement that Trapnell was ordered to no human contact after he had attempted to escape. And so he fulfilled his life sentence uh, the, after that in solitary confinement. What do you think about that? I, okay, so... Uh, two things there. I'll start with this. Uh, if you can find it, Eddie Griffith had a blog that's pretty awesome. Um, I don't think it exists anymore, so you, you don't click on any links to it if you see them somewhere. But try and find it on uh, like the Wayback Machine or the Internet Archive. Okay. I will say that I, I didn't find Trapnel Rose to the level of the type of person – He's sort of this area in time where, in my opinion, we just didn't know what to do with super crafty criminals. And I don't ever think somebody should be kept that way. And there there are multiple incidents over the years where people have been held in the shoe or like security housing union or held in solitary for many, 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 many years, sometimes almost their entire sentence. And um, 
I don't, I, that's inhumane. It, you know, it would be different. I don't want to say like this guy's not committing violent crimes because technically he is. He's committing kidnapping and armed robbery and, and he's hijacking aircrafts. But for the most part, most of his crimes were con related. Well, and so I would assume, so I think the right approach, and I don't know that if this happened or not, but yes, uh, kidnapping and uh, making demands, et cetera, that, I mean, it's not not violent, right? But did he have the capacity to hurt people, right? Like, okay, yes, he did take uh, control of the plane, but nobody got hurt, right? Nobody got hurt in that. And he didn't get any of his demands, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, so it would be if he was capable of inflicting violence, which I'm just saying that if you're going to hijack a plane and make demands and then not get your demands, that would be prime time to exhibit how much violence you could possibly, you know, have against people because you just literally didn't get what you asked for right yeah um that because that would be the time the whole reason they would give you what you asked for is because you just took all these people hostage right i mean right you know if he weren't capable of violence uh, i would have to agree that it's probably not too incredibly fair to keep him isolated like that however he did try to escape so um, I don't know. I, I just always wonder um, what other people think about that because I, I feel like that would be a very – that's like the harshest punishment. I've read quite a bit about this guy over the years. And some of the weirder news articles I've read, which if you can find – it used to be on his wiki page because I think he has a wiki page still. It was linked into something else the first time I read it, but I think it's like standout by itself or like a section of another page now. Um, if you if you can find the references to him, he, he's pretty interesting to read about. He's actually like really smart. He went into the army and didn't do well there, so he ends up getting out of the army. He's rumored to have run guns for Castro. You know, he, he has like these crazy things he's done. Uh, one of the articles was something like um, the return of Dr. Jekyll and another one was like fan mail from prison uh, reading about him. Um, I, I think that we sort of fail as a society with what to do with people like this. They just don't end up challenged. And it's not that I'm, I'm not excusing him. I'm just saying like, we don't really know what to do with a certain type of brilliance. And I genuinely believe that, uh, that Trapnel was pretty brilliant and definitely misdirected. I was going to say he may have been, you know, there's a fine line between uh, genius and crazy, right? Uh, or genius and insanity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I do feel like it, uh, it can be a tightrope to walk, right? And so, yes, he. I, I do feel like he was pretty smart, but I always feel like, uh, you know, thinking up a plan and kind of going through that, like it also makes him kind of stupid. Right. And it is kind of hard to figure out what to do with people like that. Right. Cause he's got, you know, and in fact, the 17 year old girl, uh, Robin Oswald that's mentioned, I actually, um, I don't want my teenager to do something like that, but like that initiative alone, you know, yeah. 
like, yeah. like taking it upon them. And I don't want my child to commit a violent crime or anything, but like, I just, I don't see that happening at all. And I have to say like, um, you know, she should have channeled it, channeled it towards something good. But at the same time, like she was standing up for a cause, right? I mean, that's a yeah. lot of a 17-year-old to do. I mean, oh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, it's it's so interesting to me that our response to people like this, because that incident with Robin Oswald is on the cusp of the 70s kind of ending and becoming the 80s, because it's in 1978, and then it unfolds in 1979, um, how she, you know, her trial sort of disappears into the juvenile courts. The, the, thi- the thing about those the results of those situations is we dumb down our kids today. Like as a society, like it's easier for them to consume content on iPads and video games and things like that. They're definitely not going to be doing whatever. I, I think like it's, it's weird to me, but at that time, like kids only had like movies and a little bit of television, you know, there, there was no internet as far as we know it today, there was, there was nothing like, I remember growing up in the eighties and going out by myself four hours on a bicycle. Like I would like leave my house around like right after lunchtime and I would be gone with my friends for hours. Um, and we would have adventures and we would ride our bikes and be social. And I think you're right. Uh, as far as Robin Oswald goes, you're right. The initiative is amazing. And if, if it had been applied elsewhere, it would be even more amazing. Right. And unfortunately I'm, it can, you know, the, the underlying premise of uh, like her mom wanting to get, uh, cause they were friends, I guess. Is that right? Her mom was friends with. Um... Her mom was the woman who got killed trying to help him escape. Right, right in the in the helicopter, um, and so you know, I feel a little bit sorry for um, Robin because uh, you know, obviously, her she lost her mother for this cause, right? And so I feel like a lot of things are misdirected there, right? Um, yeah, and uh, it it is really sad because honestly, you know, if you take a plane full of passengers hostage and do all the things that he did. He, he deserved to be punished for it. Right. Um, and it's kind of, I don't know that it's ironic, but like, there's something about the fact that like, she like in turn does the same thing, trying to get him out. It's weird. And that type of, uh, you know, tit for tat, uh, quid pro quo is not acceptable for like, you know, uh, as far as like like getting prisoners out. Right. It's just not, I mean, that type of thing is not tolerated and you know, it can't be successful because can you imagine like all the people out there with initiative to do things like that, trying to top each other? I mean, to be like, we live in a even more dangerous society having to deal with that. Right. I I don't have a lot to add to that particular story. I just thought it was interesting, and it ties back to the other fugitive story uh, about 
uh, Angela Davis. This guy's not really a fugitive per se. Um, He's not. Uh, he was taken right into custody, but it sounds like um, before he did that, he had committed quite a few crimes. So. Oh, yeah. He had a whole criminal career there. So he ends up, he never gets out. Um, he uh, he dies on uh, September 7th of 1993 at the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, uh, from emphysema. He was a lifelong smoker, and um, so he, he dies, and he was only 55 years old when he died. Right, so kind of put himself out of his own misery, I guess. Yeah, uh, so we, we have a couple of other fugitive stories uh, today. I, the, the second one, um, this is like one of the weirdest stories that I've ever read. On August 15th, 1999 in St. Charles, Missouri, there was a robbery at a Burger King uh, where the Burger King manager at gunpoint was relieved of $2,000 that he was about to go uh, deposit into a night deposit box at a bank. A witness saw two men leaving in a car and they reported the car's license plate number to the police. The police ran the number and they figured out that it was registered to a 22-year-old man. And the next day, they found that car in a parking lot about a mile away from that bank where the robbery had occurred. It took them about two months to find this young man, the 22-year-old. Uh, they found him hiding in his girlfriend's apartment. About six months later, um, he goes on trial in March of 2000 for armed robbery. And although police never recovered a weapon, they had searched the man's apartment and his girlfriend's apartment, and they had found different uh, brochures for a Beretta semi-automatic pistol. The prosecutor in St. Charles, Missouri, um, in this case, used that brochure to argue that although the weapon was never found, that they believed the young man had owned a gun. So the jury returns a verdict of guilty, and this young man is sentenced to 13 years in prison. Uh, this guy's name is, uh, his name is Mike Anderson, but his full name is Cornelius Michael Anderson III. Ten months after the robbery, this guy, Mike, gets out of the diagnostic center on a $25,000 bond while an appeal is ongoing for this conviction based on the inclusion of that brochure as evidence. The appeals court judge was looking at it from the perspective of whether or not it might have introduced unfair prejudice. So they were taking this appeal seriously. The appellate court later ruled um, that his conviction could stand and it would be reaffirmed. His attorney then appealed to the Supreme Court of Missouri, which they heard the case in 2002. So all of 2000, 2001, 2002, Mike, he is out on $25,000 bond. Four of the seven justices for the Supreme Court of Missouri, they vote on the case and they vote to uphold the conviction. So three thought it was unfair prejudice and four thought it was a fair conviction. So pretty even split. So what's supposed to happen when, when all this goes down is the Supreme Court rules and it rolls back down through now a computer system. Back then it could have even been paper, but it would have been slightly computerized. And that $25,000 bond is revoked for a turn-in. 
is that's what's supposed to happen. This $25,000 bond is exchanged for like, you know, the, the bondsman or whoever put up the property bond or whatever they had going there. Anderson shows up to jail and that bond is exchanged and released because it was revoked. He is supposed to be essentially arrested or retaken into custody to serve that sentence where he had been sentenced to 13 years. Something happens and because of the name Mike Anderson, the the Missouri Department of Corrections believe that he's in prison. They never motion to revoke the bond. The bond is released. And then in 2004, Anderson has another appeal filed. And that appeal is based on inadequate legal representation or ineffective assistance of counsel. The appeal states in the appeal that Mike is not in prison. It gives his current address at the time, but it's ignored. Nothing happens with this appeal. It sort of moves to a point. It's not really heard, um, and it just sits there. So for the next seven years, from 2004 to 2011, Anderson was doing what his lawyer told him to do and waiting on someone to come and pick him up and take him to prison. During this time, he met his wife. In 2007, they get married. Anderson founded a company uh, focused on construction and development. He leads a completely normal life. He registered his business. He registered to vote. He renewed his driver's license, all the while using his full name, all his legal documents, and his home address. His lawyer at that time told him that it was the state of Missouri's job to find him and to take him. On July 25th, 2013, marshals showed up at Anderson's home to arrest him. An arrest warrant had been issued for Anderson after it was discovered that he was not in prison because they went to his purported uh, corrections facility to prepare for his release. Up until that time, he had not told his wife about his prior robbery conviction. He was then held in the Southeast Correctional Center in Missouri. Now, on December 30th of 2013, he filed a writ of habeas corpus, arguing that the 13-year delay in serving his sentence violated due process, and that separating from his family now and the constructive life that he had made turning his life around on the outside for himself would be uh, amount would, would amount to cruel and unusual punishment. So I got to ask you right there. Have you heard of this case before? I haven't. Um, but this immediately, um, it makes me wonder how many people are out there like this. <laughs> I wonder that all the time. Like, uh, usually I don't see it on this part. Where I see it is people being released like sort of pre-trial and then trials not occurring. There's been several of those recently I've been following where I keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And like it's pretty – so another thing about like the difference in like the times um, of the different cases we're covering over the fugitive, depending on when you're looking at a case, it really was a completely different part of – the the judicial process like there were moments 
the further back you go, the shorter the period of time is from the moment you're arrested to the moment you go to trial. Like there, I've seen trials that happened in three months and six months. Today on a big case or a severe case, it's not unusual for it to be a year or more before a trial is really on the table. With this case, on April 15th of 2014, the Missouri Attorney General, Chris Coaster, he filed a response to like to a show cause order for Cornelius Anderson versus Ian Wallace. And he stated that the 13-year delay in serving a sentence was not cruel and unusual punishment. He wrote in the legal filing that the United States Supreme Court has upheld much more severe sentences for much less serious crimes and suggested that Anderson should instead file a petition with the Missouri Department of Corrections for an 11 and a half years credit for the time he was not in prison but did not commit additional crimes. Specifically, the, the court document reads that Anderson has, is using the wrong form of action and the wrong venue for the relief granted in Anderson versus Crawford. He's talking about Rule 91 habeas corpus action generally being limited to suits seeking immediate discharge from confinement. He's saying that he's filed for the wrong relief. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and who knows? I mean, is it the wrong relief? <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 this is one of those things where the law really becomes a living, breathing thing. And people have to make decisions in real time that are going to affect other things. So it's very difficult when I, I, I will call this a bit of an anomaly because this guy wasn't hiding. I would like to think it's an anomaly, but it concerns me. Uh, I, I haven't. Uh, I've only seen this case for like us talking about it right now, but um, it, I'm not surprised that this type of thing happens. Um, I think that maybe the part of it that's so weird is that um, he remained out uh, because a lot of times once you're found guilty, like you go right in, right? Yeah. Um, and this is probably why. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much like remanded to the custody of typically the sheriff in the United States. Um, it can be of the marshal service if you're headed to federal Somewhere prison. Else, yeah. Federal prison. But but like typically you you're remanded to custody like as you're sentenced. This was and that's why I think it might be anomaly, but I'm not sure. Well, it's and it's like I assume that uh his attorney motioned for him to remain on bail, you know, pending the appeals and uh, it it's interesting because uh, as you recounted what occurred to get him uh, to this trial, uh, it says that the guy was relieved of $2,000, like he stole $2,000 from him. But it doesn't say, uh, I may have said that he was armed, but there was no violence that occurred, right? Well, we're going to... We're going to get to part of the controversy related to this case with that in just a second. It's it's part of like what I kind of prepared from the cliff notes of this case. Oh, so, I see. Well, I didn't realize that. So No, you're fine. So they stick him in jail. And on April 17th of 2014, his attorney files a petition asking Jay Nixon, who is the governor of Missouri, uh, for clemency or to commute a sentence. Now, Nixon had only granted clemency once while he was the governor of Missouri when this happened. 
So on April 22nd, 2014, Anderson's attorney, after reconsidering and opting for the legal strategy that was suggested by the Missouri Attorney General, at one point he kind of says, no, I don't want to do that. But he he decides to uh, take what Chris Coaster said as as a, a way to file a petition for a declaratory judgment against the director of the Missouri Department of Corrections, a guy named George Lombardi at the time. The petition argues that Anderson should get credit for the time he served from May 25th, 2000 to the present, and that Anderson should basically be released from custody immediately because that would put him past the max of his sentence based on the statutes and how they roll out those sentences. The petition for release is, in addition to the writ of uh, habeas corpus that he filed in December 2013 and a request for executive clemency. So they set a hearing date for May of 2014, which is kind of unheard of for something to happen that quickly. He files on April the 22nd and then May 15th, they're having a May 5th, they're having a hearing about it. So May 5th of 2014, Anderson gets released from prison with credit for time served, which makes him a free man with no need for parole. The hearing is held in Charleston, Missouri, with Judge Terry Lynn Brown as the presiding judge. And the hearing begins with Anderson's attorney pleading his case by pointing out that Anderson has essentially been his own parole officer since his conviction and that he had done the job to rehabilitate himself. So he rehabilitated himself. And the attorney for the Department of Corrections, when he spoke, he raised little objection to what Anderson's attorney had said, and he asked the judge to consider Anderson's good behavior since 2000. So Judge Brown made his ruling, and he told Anderson this. You've been a good father. You've been a good husband. You've been a good taxpaying citizen of the state of Missouri. That leads me to believe that you are a good man and a changed man. So he tells Anderson he's going to receive credit for time served from 2000 when he's released on bond up till 2013. This 13-year period satisfies the entirety of his maximum sentence. And the judge announces in the courtroom that, as such, your sentence will be fully served and satisfied today. Go home to your family, Mr. Anderson, and continue to be a good father, a good husband, a good taxpayer, and good luck to you. Attorney Coaster, Attorney General Coaster, who was the one who suggested doing this, he released a statement after Judge Brown's ruling. He said, from the outset, I propose a solution that balances the seriousness of Mr. Anderson's crime with the mistake made by the criminal justice system and Mr. Anderson's lack of a criminal record over the past 13 years. Today's outcome appears to be appropriately balancing the facts as we understand them. Now, there's a little controversy to this. So after this starts getting media attention in 2013, the Burger King manager, who is only listed as Dennis, who is the victim of the robbery, he contacts the Riverfront Times and he tells them he wants them to talk about how much the robbery damaged his life. He told the Riverfront Times that the robbery made him paranoid that the robbers would come after him. He quit his job, he isolated himself, and his marriage eventually broke up. At about the same time, his daughter had also read the story in a high school class but didn't know that Dennis was the victim. She came home and she told Dennis about the case and asked him for his opinion about it. The Riverfront Times reports that he told his daughter that he thought Anderson should be let go. 
So Cornelius Michael Anderson's story was then broadcast on the Valentine's Day episode of This American Life. And during that episode, Jessica Lusenhop raised this question. 13 years without going to prison did exactly what you'd hope 13 years in prison will do for a person. Mike reformed. He became a model citizen, which raises the question, do we want to send him to prison? Because it will cost the state of Missouri over over $20,000 a year to house and feed him. So after this episode aired in 2014, emails started coming in. There was a petition set up on change.org. And by May 5th, 2014, the date of his release from prison, there were over 35,000 signatures that had been, re- that had been received at change.org to let him go. I thought this was a really interesting uh, look at like what prison does for people. Hmm. Well, I, I don't really see how it, is an interesting look at what prison does for people. Well, the outcome from this came from him never going to prison. That is what, but the outcome is the, the thing that you expect when you put people in prison. Well, yeah, cause yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case. What immediately pops into my mind is like, so where's the point where like, they would realize the mistake and it would still be valid to put him in jail. Like, is it halfway through the sentence? Like, um, and you know, I have questions about all that. Um, you know, I'd like to be like, well, he should have turned himself in. Right. But I happen to know that like you could walk into a jail and be like, I'm supposed to be here for 13 years. And if you're not on the computer system, you're not going in. Right. No, you're definitely not going. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't know that his attorney's advice was like the necessarily the best advice. Um, like where he was like, they're going to get you someday. Just, you know, wait it out or whatever. I do think that uh, it was a balanced solution to the problem. It, it just goes to show like, you know, it was just, well, maybe a couple of people. I was going to say it's just one person not doing their job, but there's probably a couple of things that fell apart there in order for his uh, bond not to get revoked, like you were describing. Right. Um, but it is interesting. Uh, so he was basically, I don't know that he's not really a fugitive because he didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, he went through the process. It was the process that, uh, didn't do the right thing, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. But he still, like, it, it sort of fits. No, no, I agree that it fits. It's just an interesting sort of um, spin on the fugitives from justice because you're right. I mean, he, in in some ways, it, it definitely fits with fugitives that escape be, just because of the nature of it. Um, and he didn't have to escape. Uh, that's, it's a, it's a, that's a, fascinating situation well so the lawyer that's involved in all of this his name is um patrick mcgarrow and i looked him up and i did come across some of this stuff uh by way of wikipedia uh fox who now covered some of this uh u.s news had some coverage this american life christian science monitor there's a lot of court documents you can read on this case this was interesting to me um so in 2000 a man named renee lima Marin was convicted of multiple counts of robbing a man at gunpoint in Colorado. He gets sentenced. 
and he'll be eligible eligible for parole in the year 2098. So he gets a 98-year sentence. Make sense? Oh, wait. What did he do? He is convicted of multiple counts of robbing a man at gunpoint. Okay. And he, he gets a 98-year sentence. Okay. Uh, no, it's a 100-and-some-year sentence, but he'll be eligible for parole in 2098. Okay. There's a clerical error. Mm-hmm. He gets out in 2008. So that was like a Y2K thing or something. I, that's what I that's what I think looking at it. But <laughs> that's exactly what I said. Like that's exactly what I said out loud when I saw it. So, so, like, so he gets a job. He marries the woman that he had been with before he went to prison. He becomes active in the local church and the local community. Um, he helps raise his stepson. They have another kid. In January of 2014, the state of Colorado comes along and they're like, wait a second. So this guy's now 35 years old. He's been out of prison for, uh, I think it was six years, almost seven years. And they take him back into custody. So Patrick Magaro argues that like, they made an error. They should let him stay out because he spent seven years not recommitting. Uh, and they do finally, so they take him into custody in 2014. They do release him in 2017. Uh, but you know what the Wikipedia thing pointed out was that unlike Corne- uh, Mike Anderson's case, uh, the robbery victim did not forgive uh, Renee Lima Mar- Marin. And um, Lima Marin, it, it's not really clear whether he understood that he was allowed to go. Like he was surprised but he didn't hang around to find out. He was like, I'm a, can I'm a head over happen? here. Can, it's not like you're going to be like, well, wait, I've got 90 more years to go. Yeah. Uh, with Mike Anderson, just to wrap up his case, lightning sometimes does strike twice. On November 16, 2014, Anderson was leaving a bar to go to his vehicle to drive home. A couple of officers were talking to a woman who had just had her purse snatched and Anderson roughly matched the vague description of the robber. So when Anderson was taken to the scene by the officers who saw him walking, both the victim and a witness identified him as being the robber. So they take him in, they interrogate him and they put him in a police lineup. And again, Witnesses and the victim identify him in the police lineup. So he gets charged with second degree robbery. So when Anderson was picked up by the police, he didn't have any of the woman's property on him. He told police he'd been in a bar at a birthday party with his wife and 40 other people. They began to investigate the incident. Um, specifically, Anderson's wife gets into involved and goes a little nuts and she located surveillance video from the bar that showed that Anderson was in at the party at the estimated time of the robbery. And the Riverfront Times also investigated Anderson's alibi. They obtained footage on November 18, 2014 of the November 16, 2014 timeframe from the bar that showed that Anderson was definitely in the bar. And on February 6, 2015, after reviewing surveillance video, 
Circuit attorney Jennifer Joyce dropped all the charges against Anderson, and she issued an apology stated that she had discussed the case with St. Louis Police Chief Sam Dotson and how police procedures could be improved to avoid such mistakes in the future. Joyce stated that Dotson told her um, that he takes full accountability for what happened. He's going to go over it and make sure that more proper training occurs. That's that's a really um, it is really interesting that he was rearrested for like a similar crime, but it was based on um, sort of something that training isn't going to fix, which would be you know eyewitness testimony or eyewitness uh, identification, right? Uh, well, I think it would be based on how officers uh, canvass the scene or how line investigators, who are usually like the first guys um, there before. A detective would be involved. Um, I think it's. I think there's something going on there. They, they imply there's like a racial prejudice to the eyewitness testimony that was being presented. Um, was the case ever solved? I do not know the answer to that. I, I think just it, be curious what the guy looked like. You know. Hmm. Now I gotta go. Now I'll have to go hunt. Yeah. No. That that would be that would sort of answer that question right i have no idea if it was um if it there was a racial sort of because you're saying basically they saw a black guy and then like the police brought the black guy right and they were like yeah that looks like him whether it did or not we don't know right but that's what you're saying as far as it being prejudiced oh i'm definitely saying that yes absolutely um and so you know it just uh, I, I I am going to need to see what the, if it was solved, what the guy looked like. Um, that might have uh, sort of put a damper on things. Um, and it's the same year that he gets out. It's, it's like uh, he gets out in May and then this happens in November. Right. Uh, well, and, you know, his wife, you said, had gone a little crazy. I think it was uh, it was warranted. warranted. Yeah, 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 definitely. I, um, I would have lost my mind. It's it. Oh, I can only imagine. Like, like, are you kidding me? Right? <laughs> like having to like. Oh, this is awful. Um, that actually reeks almost of like a conspiracy. Except for you've got the um, victim and her and a witness. You know, corroborating yeah. his identification. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that that all worked out. And I assume he has not gotten in any more trouble because I'm sure it would be out there if he had. I think I think we would hear about it by now. So I have one more for today. And this one is not as crazy as you might think. So this is, do you ever, do you know what Real Humans, or do you know what Humans of New York is? The blog? Um, Just a little bit. I, I don't know a whole lot about it. I sometimes it ends up in my newsfeed and I'll follow uh, the blog or uh, particularly I'll follow, they do like these sort of picture parts on Instagram where it's like a super long caption with a, a photo and they'll tell multiple part. Um, I don't know what you would call them stories. Um, there was one that caught my eye a while back and I did go up and I, I, I sort of pulled up a couple of different articles about this guy have you ever heard about Bobby Love? I'd never heard of him before we were looking into it now. Okay, so Bobby Love, he ends up featured in the um, Humans of New York uh, blog. 
he was born Walter Miller in 1977. He escaped from prison in North Carolina while he was serving a 10 year sentence for bank robbery. And after his escape, he took on the name Bobby love and he began living a law abiding life in New York city. A few years later, um, he was working at in Brooklyn at the Baptist medical center and he met his future wife, Cheryl Love. The story from the Humans of New York is very poignant. If you get a chance, Bobby Love's story is, is kind of cool. There's this book, uh, in addition to the blog, there's this book, uh, The Redemption of Bobby Love. So there was something about Bobby that made Cheryl feel slightly distant from him. And she could never figure it out until January 22nd, 2015. And neither Cheryl nor her children were aware of Bobby's crime or the life that he had lived before becoming Bobby Love. After his arrest, Love was uh, extradited back to North Carolina and his escape offense was handled through a disciplinary process. And he had to uh, complete this process uh, by doing a year in jail while he went through it. Um, his wife said that she was shocked, but she never thought about uh, leaving his side. Now, News One and Oprah Daily, they've all covered this. Uh, the New York Daily News has an article on this. Um, and there's there's some interesting little quotes about it that pop up in the, the Humans of New York blog as well. It says, since his January 5th return, he's been to Coney Island with his grandson, too the child of his oldest daughter, and had been welcomed back by members of his family's church. Their 30th wedding anniversary was March uh, 30th, when love was behind bars. Um, My father was determined to change his life, and for 40 years or so, he did just that, said his daughter, Jessica, um, she tells the New York Daily News upon his arrest. So basically, they bring him back down here. They It takes about a year for him to get things cleared up. And they let Walter Miller, turned Bobby Love, go back to his life as Bobby Love. And the, the Humans of New York blog has 11 parts where they're talking about the, the way this all went down. It as of this morning, the first part had over 500,000, uh, 491,000 likes and 21,617 comments. Um, if you get a chance and you want to read sort of a heartwarming story, I think that Bobby Love's story is worth reading. Now, I will say this. He does not in any way, shape, form or fashion say anything about he's been unfairly persecuted. He literally says we would go down to North Carolina and rob banks because North Carolina didn't have surveillance cameras. Um, <laughs> they, they came across a bank with had a silent alarm and the police were outside waiting for them when they ran out and they were all trying to get away. And he was running from the cops. He's running between cars and he got shot in the butt. <laughs> and he, he says he woke up in the hospital and he had, a hole in the front and the back of his coat where the bullet was a through and through. And he said, that's when it was over for Walter Miller. He was originally sentenced to 25 to 30 years. 
and sent to Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. He said he had hopes of getting an appeal or being released on a technicality, but neither happened. Um, he also revealed that while he was incarcerated, his mother had died. And that affected him because she was always the one that wanted him to turn his life around. And would, she said she would pray for him. And she really wanted to see him do it. And there was no way for her to ever see that. So when she passed away, Love said that it changed his time at Central Prison. He committed himself to, to doing better. And that he had decided he was going to become the perfect inmate. And his behavior was so good that they transferred him down the hill to a minimum security facility that was more like a camp, which you and I have talked about before. It's more open. He said that he had no intentions of escaping the minimum security prison, but he explained why he did this. Someone yelled punk ass at one of the prison captains while Love was working in the prison's kitchen. It was not him. However, the prison captain decided he was going to be held responsible. And consequently, the prison captain and the guards that worked for him started to pick on love. The more good deeds he tried to do, the more punishments he would face. He was eventually put in a trustee's position and given a prison job where he had to ride on a bus all over Raleigh and pick up trash all day. He described it as the worst job in the prison. And he observed that the bus would stop at a particular wooded intersection. And the guard who worked on Tuesdays would not search or count the prisoners as they boarded back on the bus. So Love decided that the next Tuesday, he was not getting back on the bus. And he makes it to New York with um, $100 in small bills, a pair of clothes, and the name Bobby Love. He lives in a flea bag hotel, and he says he survived off of hot dogs and marijuana until his money ran out, and he had to sleep on a train. Uh, he said the first official document that he got was a social security card after he went to social security and explained he had lost everything. And then he found out his original birth certificate and he modified it to put Bobby love on the main line. He photocopied it many, many times so that it wouldn't look fake. And then he found a guy at the DMV who would pretend not to notice um, that the stamp that was on his birth certificate was not great. And he got his driver's license. He met his wife. It's a great story. I, I find it interesting. This guy just walked away from prison. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to do something else. And then I guess you just, if you do that, I guess you just get so scared that you don't know what to do. Uh, yeah. But, well, I mean, he escaped, right? Um, there's he no walked question. away, so it's definitely an escape. And so, you know, well, he did, I mean, he, it's not like he was going to turn himself back in, right? No, he, like, his whole point was he couldn't do it anymore. He felt like, he, no matter what he did at that point, this is his words, he had been made a target for something that had happened, and it was just going to continue to be on his back the entire time that he was there. And I don't yeah. think he felt like he could take it. Yeah. That I, mean. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was like a much more positive note to end on than some of the other stories where it's like a, you know, a rapist murderer running free. I thought we would 
I thought we would go this route because. Well, yeah, because he, so he did commit the crime. He did get shot in the butt in the meantime, which is kind of hilarious to me. Um, and it kind of shows that he wasn't ever going to be a violent criminal because he got shot, right? He was running away. I mean, he said he was with a group of guys that that's what they did. They robbed banks down there. And so that to me is a violent crime. And there is always the potential for somebody to get hurt. Absolutely. And I'm not, but I'm saying like, so yes, the action was, however, this was a kid who um, essentially he was just in with the wrong crowd. I don't think he benefited any from this robbery. I it does it doesn't really get into all the details, but like he ends up going to jail for a long time for it. Even having escaped, he had been there a while, right? Yeah, he had. He had been there for I think it was ten years. He, it was ten years into the sentence, maybe. I, I, I don't know how I feel about him getting let. That's a weird kind of thing. I, I have to hold on to the idea that. Ultimately, he is turning his life around, and that's the goal, right? That's the goal. We want people to be reformed. We want them to stop committing those kind of crimes. Correct. Yep. That's all I got for Bobby Love, Mike Anderson, and Garrett Trapnell. You got anything else on these guys? No, that'll do it. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.